It's a great pleasure to welcome somebody who, in many ways, uh, encapsulates the bridge between the professional theatre world and the world of, uh, well, in this case, uh, the, somebody who teaches theatre uh, and who is also a hispanist. Joe Clifford, uh, as you'll see on the programme itself, Joe is a playwright. Uh, that's an understatement. Uh, an astonishingly prolific playwright. Uh, uh, has worked performed all around the world, uh, including at the national, obviously, well known to Scottish audiences for work at the Traverse uh, and so on. Wonderful plays that I remember with huge affection, like Ines de Castro, uh, uh, Losing Venice, and so on. Uh, Joe is, as well as a playwright, Professor of Theatre Studies and the Bill Findlay Fellow of Stage Translation at Queen Margaret University, Edinburgh. I'm not sure if that's still the case. Uh, well, no. On January the 31st, I'm retired. Okay. So I'm about to become a pensioner. <laughs> uh, also a hispanist. Uh, Joe has done a lot of work on Calderon, a lot of work on Lorca, translations as well. Really wonderful pieces of writing because she knows that this is living language and she cares about the language as well. And that is, I think, really the mark of the, of the great writer that, that Joe Clifford is. So with the intriguing title, What Do We Do About the Dailies? Joe Clifford, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, thank you very much. Well, what shall we do about the dahlias? Yes. Now, I, I don't know who you are. You all sound like you know Lorca pretty well. Is that right? You know, you know Blood Wedding. You know Boris de Sangre. There's that incredible scene at the very end of, uh, of the play where the mother comes in. Her last son has been killed. She's mourning the death of her entire family. She's filled with that kind of bitterness and that rage that comes from desperate bereavement. And then the young woman comes in that has been at the centre of the conflict between her son and Leonardo. The young woman who we know the mother will hold to blame for the death of her son. And it's one of these moments when a, when a, when a character comes on stage and if it's good production, shivers run down your spine. You think, oh my God. What is going to happen? And sure enough, among other things, the mother savagely beats the young woman. And the young woman says, among other things, she says, Vengate, vengate te mi, aquí estoy. Offers herself up to death. She says, Mira, mira que mi cuello es blando. Te costará menos trabajo que cegar una dalia de tu mano. It's a fantastic, beautiful line. But if you've got to translate it, your heart sinks. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know it means. Look, my neck is soft. It'll cost you less work than cutting down a dahlia in your garden. 
And then if you go to Yerma, it's a fantastic scene in uh, the middle of Yerma. You know Yerma? Well, beautiful, amazing scene of conflict between the main character, Yerma, who is desperate for a child, whose whole identity is bound up with having a child, and her husband, who doesn't want children at all because they cost money and they're a nuisance and they make lots of noise and they make smelly nappies and things. Incredible, incredible conflict between the two. And the husband goes off and Yerma is left on her own and she says, stage direction here says, Yerma, como soñando, as if dreaming. She says, ay, ay, que prado de pena. Ay, que puerta cerrada la hermosura. Que pido un hijo que sufrir. El aire me ofrece dalias de dormida luna. Another beautiful line, and again you're translating and you go, oh my God, <laughs> dahlias again. I am asking a son. I'm asking for a son to suffer, and the air offers me dahlias of sleepy moon. How do you deal with this? Well. It's, very, it's a very wonderful thing. I love, I love translating for the theatre. And if, and if translating for the theatre was just, was just a matter of getting the words right, there'd be no problem at all, would there? Because we know what dahlia means. Dahlia means dahlia. So what is the problem? Well, there's the problem of the music of Lorca's language. Dahlia is just such a beautiful word. Dahlia. Oh, Lord. <laughs> dahlia is a very ugly word. And it's occurring at a moment where you don't want an ugly word. But also there's a whole question of the associations. I don't know, I didn't grow up in Spain, so I don't quite know what, what Dahlia means. But I know what Dahlia means in English. Dahlia makes me think of uh, Bertie Worcester's Aunt Dahlia. <coughs> or middle-aged ladies in tweeds <coughs> pruning their Dahlias in smart suburban gardens. And so when I hear the word, the image that comes up in my head is completely the wrong one. So there's another problem. And then, because when you translate, so when, when you're translating, you're trying, to, you're trying to get the words right. You're trying to get the sort of associations right as well. You're also trying to write lines that an actor would find pleasure in performing. And certainly if I had to play that part and some bastard gave me a line, said, cut me down like a dahlia. <laughs> I'd be very cross with them because it would be so hard to say convincingly. So that's another problem. And then there's the question of the world, the imaginative and emotional world that the playwright inhabits and that the playwright's character inhabits because you're trying to translate that as well. When I translate, I'm, it's, well, it is like writing a play, actually. Because I try to become the character in my imagination. I try to feel whatever I imagine the character to feel as vividly as I possibly can. I try to think what the character is thinking as strongly as I can. And I want to try to inhabit the world 
of the playwright, who in this case I trust totally. I trust him with my life. As absolutely as strong as I can. Hmm. And Lorca's world, particularly the sexual politics of Lorca's world, sometimes strikes us as very alien. I'm so glad Paul Binding's here because I, I just love his book. I read his book about Lorca and the gay imagination. I can't remember how many years ago. It was so important to me. And I actually, speaking, you know, Lorca was a, was a homosexual growing up in a profoundly, profoundly repressive society. And speaking as a, as a transsexual woman who, again, has grown up in a profoundly repressive society and has had to struggle I've struggled for most of my life to find my real identity. And now, living openly as a transsexual in a world that is really not very friendly to us, I can enter, I feel I can enter into that aspect of Lorca's world with a lot of ease. But there's another aspect of Lorca's world that I would like to, to talk a, a little bit more about today. And that's to do with his connection with the natural world. Okay, Lodka was essentially an urban playwright writing for an urban audience. But it's worth remembering that what made him a playwright, what really made him a playwright was his experience with La Baraka, of producing golden age plays and of taking them around the villages of Spain and seeing how those plays worked for audiences that really didn't know them at all. And it's worth remembering as well what Mordecai said about how important it was for him to grow up in the countryside, to listen to the way people spoke in the countryside, to listen to the dear, dear woman, the nurse, who looked after him and told him stories and sang lullabies to help him to go to sleep at night. He said that these words, this language was, it was his storehouse. He spoke of it as a kind of, I don't know, kind of treasure chest almost inside his self, inside his imagination. But he trusted totally and that he drew on for his inspiration. Whenever I try to work on a play like Yerma, I am aware of how this is happening in a world that is governed to a huge extent by the rhythm of the seasons. And David's quite right about Greek tragedy at the root of it. And just remember that Greek tragedy was a ritual for fertility. It was totally tied in with the rhythm of the seasons and trying to make the song help the song come back to the new spring and make the corn grow again. And this is a whole world that we are so out of touch with. You just have to go out of the door of this theatre into this appalling, I'm sorry if anybody's from Coventry, <laughs> the appalling urban landscape of this town to understand how far we are cut off from the natural world. Um, I'm also tempted to take away that bloody screen so we can see these trees outside the window. We suffer 
We suffer terribly because we are out of touch with the natural world. And those brave trees <coughs> struggling out there against the acid rain, against the vagaries of the climate, against the oh, all the crud and crap that lands on them. They're like an image of something very precious inside ourselves that is struggling. Last week I was, um, I was working with a white witch. We were doing a fertility ceremony which involved taking grains of wheat and made a circle. We were doing this ceremony, it was all a bit surreal, it was in a sort of wimpy estate just outside Stirling. <laughs> we, made a, we made a circle of grain in the middle of this IKEA furnished living room and just it's years since I felt grain in my hand or smelt it and it just brought home to me how out of touch are we with this world and isn't that why Lorca is so precious to us isn't that why he really matters so much because he comes from that world he speaks to us of that world, and tonight, when we watch this, oh, this fantastic, beautiful play, Casa de Bernada Alba, we will be immersed in that world. And somehow, as you translate, you have to, or I have to, try to, again, get back in touch with that long, forgotten part of myself, in order that I can find the words from that part of my imagination that will somehow convey what is going on here and it will somehow help me do something about these bloody dahlias. <laughs> what I wanted to do today was actually buy a dahlia uh, but I was totally defeated by all the shopping centres here. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know if any of you know what, what a dahlia actually looks like, because I realised, oh, no, it's a dahlia. Dahlias, and if you, there are dahlia experts here, do, do feel free to um, correct me. I'm fairly safe, but a dahlia. A dahlia is a flower with a very big head. And... The head is so heavy that it hangs down. And it's like the head of a submissive <coughs> animal hanging down, ready to be cut. Your homework, by the way, is to go out and buy yourselves a baby <laughs> so that you, you really can, can understand this. So maybe one answer to this Hideous line. Te costará menos trabajo que seguir una dalia de tuerto. Is to say, see, see how soft my neck is. It'll be easier than pruning a flower in your garden. You avoid dalias. Run away from dalias. What about this other one, Yerma, in Yerma? Pido un hijo que sufrir, y el aire me ofrece dalias de dormida luna. 
The wind offers me dahlias of sleeping moon. Well, what is a dahlia? What does a dahlia do? It droops. What's her husband's penis doing? <laughs> it's drooping. This is at the root of the poor woman's trouble. A drooping, flaccid penis. That's no use for anything except pissing. She wants one that is erect and full of seed and full of fruitfulness. Now I haven't got to the scene yet, I'm trying to play so didn't quite know what to do. <laughs> but when I was on the train here, <laughs> I jotted this down. I want a sun to make me suffer. And the wind offers me limp flowers under a half-hearted moon. Mm, don't know if that's any good, actually. <laughs> but anyway, it'll do for now. So what do we do about the dahlias? I'll tell you what we do. We trust Lorca. We try to get back to his world. We try to allow his world to enter our imagination. We try to connect with it in a living vital way and then we see what happens thank you <laughs>
Is she just having sex with him? Oh yeah, she is having sex with him. Because she uses, she uses this verb to cover when he, when he covers me. Yeah, it's not, it's not much fun though, is it? No, no, but it's... Uh, Mm. It's his duty. Yes, I, I get a sense he comes very quickly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they have an orgasm. Do you think they have an No. Okay. So, <laughs> I don't know what the bulletin of Hispanic studies would have to say about that. I'm not quibbling about, about Delia's, uh, uh, but um, the feeling that you have to get back to Lorica's love of nature as something very real and, uh, and personal and autobiographical. I'm not sure it's necessarily helpful, though, is it? Well, I, I suppose it's not Lorca's love of nature, is it? Uh, it's, it's, it's my love of nature. I have to get back to my love of nature. I have to, get, I have to reconnect with that part of myself. Because, because a lot of what the dahlias or all the other bits of nature are doing here is, it, is um, a sort of mythical, purely symbolic element, aren't they? It's a kind of transcending of nature that they're being used for. It's not very important that you get any particular sense of um, what a dahlia really is like physically um, or any of the other natural elements that come in, I wouldn't have thought. It's, it's the resonance of it. It's the, the poetic but I think, but I think poetic impact of a dahlia that's the big thing here. Yeah, but I don't understand how you get to the poetic impact of a dahlia without having a sense of what a dahlia looks like. Oh, uh, yeah, it looks like. Or, what it, or you know, do you know what I mean? And, and, and I think that when, it, when he speaks in that interview about the way in which people used language when he was a child, he speaks about it in a very, he said it was incredibly precise. It was based on uh, observation of the natural world. And so maybe, maybe that's important. Oh, um, and I, I agree about the specificities specificities of nature are very important to Locke, I'm sure, because in the, in the poet in New York, I mean, one of his main accusations against American society you know, is its ignorance of nature, its ignorance of specificities of nature. And when he goes out into the country and he uh, has the sort of retrieve in Vermont and so on, I mean, this is one of the things that uh, enables him to come back to New York and make the denunciation that he does. Yeah. So I think um, Dahlia's or whatever you <laughs> substitute for that, I think they are important. Though I do also agree that, I mean, they have the metaphoric, the symbolic part to play but I think that um, they are important. And the same with insects, the same with birds. Um, you find them, uh, I think, throughout the earth. Lovely. Yes, I agree. And, and you, get, you get to understanding what that metaphorical thing is by, by just looking at it, by being there. So it's great those trees are there that we can look at them. It's whether, of course, you can find the same specificity in English, because you were suggesting it yeah. becomes flower. You see, yeah, I, I don't, yeah, that's, that, that. that's one of the difficulties of getting something that works, both in terms of the, mm. the drooping yeah. and yeah. nature of the, of the, yeah. of the flower and the, the funereal sense. Yeah, oh, yeah, I, I, gosh, and that's really, that's a real challenge. That, that's really interesting. Huh, so I love it's that. It's difficult to translate dahlias as something that isn't even a flower, isn't it? Yes, yes. A, uh, what was that, a drag hoe? <laughs> 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 Michael Bell of University of Warwick. No, it's just a little remark that it, it may be a false dichotomy to say whether it's nature or symbol. As far as human beings are concerned, nature 
is deeply symbolic. That's Absolutely. how we experience it. And that's yeah. why I think your instinct was, was quite right. Yeah. Thank you. Paul, did you want to come back in there? No, 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 no. I'm sure I could, but I mean, I'm I thought you were waving your hand. No, that's Yes. It's again, you are right 100%, 100%. And it's the same with, with the poems from Alfred Gitano. When the moon comes yeah. with the spine arts, you know, yeah. Yeah. the nardos, it's, it's impossible to translate that. Or when they are, that Casal Infiel is going to, to actually sleep with the, with the gypsy, you know, mm. he's going to sleep with a woman who's married. Mm. Then it's these cinco cuchillos, it's, you know, mm. you cannot really uh, translate five knives in English. No. So I went for five nails. Yeah. That you right. get the That's image right. of being in a hurry to to perform the the act, and then that's it like that. So you have to find the equivalent. In it's all the time like that. You have to play, but you must not lose the the sense of the rural dream yeah. of Lorca. But what's interesting, what what you're describing it very beautifully though, because you have to experience whatever it is. Exactly. That, you have and, to. And then you have to find the words to translate that experience in your own that's coming from your own heart and then of course you have to go back to the original to check that you haven't gone somewhere completely different uh, Sarah Blackburn, University. Um, but there's more than one reference to today as a local's project because there's um, you, you, but all I'm saying is that it's that it's not just it's not just one image it's, it's a, an appreciation of images yeah. Yeah. so if you get to the month of Nidane, you've got the poem of uh, San Miguel and he's this the saint is a kind of statue dressed up to the nights, walking around, and he rompe dalis en el aire, so he walks around. So I mean, there's, it's it's not just one dahlia from a dahlia book. It's it's, 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 a, it's a world of dahlias. <laughs> Someone's probably written a thesis about the use of the dahlia. <laughs> yeah. not, not you're right. Fantastic. It's, it's a whole complex of, of that stuff. What do you understand about that, that image of the rompe dalis? I I I haven't got to it. I'm I'm. I'm looking at crossover art forms, so poems that want to be other things, plays that want to be yeah. uh, films, um, play, po poems that want to be sculptures or that act for. And one of the things I'm looking at in San Miguel is, is, is the imagery of the statue sort of brought to life in an almost filmic, almost kind of cartoonish way. And you've got this kind of swaggering, not very saintly saint covered in sequins, you know, uh, and I think there's a, there's a kind of an arrogance and a, a sort of sense of swaggering, and that, that's how I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily put Adelia in there at all, except to give a sense of, you know, this, you know, I, I, I sort of imagine he was kind of, you know, kicking flowers as he went along and less, having petals sort of exploding all over the place, but whether or not you'd actually use the word Adelia in there, I don't know, I probably wouldn't. It's a, it's a, swag, it's a swaggering kind of self-importance, but, but then the, the, the discussion we just had about it, about the associations with death, would put a totally different complexion on it. But I, I haven't got there yet. Okay, that's very interesting. Yes? Uh, Adam Olsen from the University of Warwick. The Dahlia, or Dahlia, is uh, an incredibly, um, for me, a, a very vulnerable flower. But at the same time, it's very sexy, uh, which seems to be a very different way of looking at this flower to yourself. Now, what that made me think about was following on from what you were saying, Catherine, about Roland, Roland Barthes and how the act of reading it is in itself an act of writing or rewriting or recreation or whatever you want to call it. 
So, so to take this incredibly exciting process away from this very evocative flower could be quite detrimental to, to the, um, some really exciting possibilities in the text. Because um, I'm sure everybody in this room, uh, the dahlia is going to be interpreted differently, it's going to evoke different feelings and emotions. Um, so I think it's quite important to keep the, 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 that specificity in the text. The yeah. But do you mean specifically the dahlia itself? Or? Yeah, yeah, because uh, I mean, Locke, well, he, he obviously chose this, this flower for a reason, whatever that reason yeah. is, is, is debatable. But um, I, I think it's exciting that we can exploit these symbols and the different uh, ways we can look at these symbols. Um, so, to, so to remove that and just to replace it with, with flower, for example, I think um, it's perhaps losing some, some exciting potential. Yeah, I'm sure it, it, is, it is losing something. Maybe it's getting something else. I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, reading your translation when you, when you do it and see how you solve it, because it'll be very different from mine. Catherine? Yeah, Catherine, well, just, just following on from that, I think, I, I, don't, I translate it, I don't know if I use Dahlia, but what I like about this discussion is part of the, the, the exciting thing about translation, as you said, which is which, when it takes you into the other world, and as a translator, you have that privilege of exploring <coughs> Dahlia and finding out about all the, the cultural resonance of it and what it actually means, and, and you know, how you think about that in terms of now death, of, as we even can think of similar flowers, not that that's a good translation right? but what I was thinking of what, what you've just said, what is really exciting is about that journey, Yeah, isn't it? and that's that's the, that's the nice thing you think and it's a, it's a quintessential translation issue isn't it how much of that journey do you want to keep in, because that journey in itself is an incredibly beautiful, exciting journey which translation will always take us on, so I'm guessing you should today, yeah, but I just like that idea of how you know no. It is the most beautiful thing about translation, the journey as a translator, that you go on, and how you can yeah. preserve that somehow for your audience. Yeah, and what, what a privilege and what a joy it is to be able to enter into the world of such a great artist. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic gift. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's incredible how everyday objects, like in the flower or whatever, have hugely different resonances within different cultures. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Connolly is a BBC uh, journalist, uh, and he, he does a lot of work in Northern Ireland. Was covering the the IRA men who were held in, in Colombia, and he was there for two days. And he told everyone he was really looking forward to the exotic fruit in Colombia. So as he, he came down for breakfast in the hotel in the morning, and he said to the waiter, uh, he tried to say it in Spanish. He said. Uh, Fruta exotica, por favor. <laughs> and uh, the waiter said, and went off. He could see people running around the kitchen looking desperately for exotic fruit. Eventually <laughs> came out with a big silver salver and took the top off and inside were three apples and a pear. <laughs> <laughs> the most exotic fruit you could find in the world. <laughs> so you know, the context changes the resonance uh, of, the, of, of, of the object uh, uh, as, as well. But in terms of what you were talking about, absolutely, you know, the, the, you, you could make, of course, you could make nearly everything work in theatre. Yeah. And you know, if, if translation starts to become prescriptive for what you have to do, then it's not doing the right thing. Any final? So that will put people off. Uh, any other questions before before we break for lunch? Any final comments? Or? Mm -hmm. Um, David Bennett, um, choreographer, actor, performer. 
I'm intrigued. Uh, a number of things um, occurred to me. Obviously, I have a vested interest in, in terms of as a dancer. But Catherine talked about um, valorizing the body. Um, you talked about the space between the stage and the audience um, and not the old issues of symbolism. And I come to Lorca through that in terms of dance yeah. offers so much of, that's right, the difference between, rather than the debate being about the spoken word, is about the imagery, you've talked about choreography. All of these, these are things that choreographers use. And I'm just wondering, was Lorca more of a dance maker than a playwright? Mm. He, he talks a lot, I remember one of his remarks is about the importance of timing. Yeah, rhythm, exactly. Rhythm, dynamics. And, and, and in his plays, the timing is just absolutely crucial. He really, really desperately cared about that. Because if you get the timing wrong, it's like somebody Pause, hitting the... Yeah, absolutely. Rest, all that. Yeah. Um, well, it's a mixture between dance and music, isn't it? Yeah, you know, and I think well, there yeah. is that. And the, you know, looking at these different statements he makes about theatre, when he talks about rhythm and pulse and time, it's really, it's, I think it's absolutely crucial. When you hear about, about the direction that he did do, when he did direct his own plays and he ignored his own stage directions, what he didn't ignore was moving and movement and, and making this beautiful scene on stage, yeah. which would be moving, and, and the timing of when you read it. The timing of the timing of the first scene of Yerma, for example, is just so beautiful, you know, and, and all of that is there, and I think that's where you get really into. But I'm just, uh, but I'm curious as to then is this something where there is, I don't want to say it, but the Spanishness, but that sort of there's a difference between English theatre and perhaps Spanish theatre. The theatre is more encompass. Is it? I, I'm a, a ignorant on theatre history, but the notion that um, in England we have an audience, so the idea of the oral, so the spoken word, whereas in other languages it's more to do with spectacle, spectatory, that notion, so there is, there's, it's beyond, it, it's, it's other than the word, it, it's, it's theatre is a much broader term. I, I, I think ritual is central uh, yeah. to, to, to Lorca's theatre. Uh, ritual both as a social statement, but as a way of, of choreographing movement on, on the stage as well. You know, Bernard Alba tonight is a series of different rituals mm. that, that, that take place on, 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 on stage. Uh, I, for what it's worth, I think English actors are hampered by sort of a, 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 a tendency from Stanislavski to over into intellectualize you know what what language is, is about and language isn't about language is doing mm -hmm. uh, and i think Lorca was a profound doer with words mm -hmm. and that comes right from the spanish golden age yes. right. and spanish golden age players were intrinsically linked to dance mm -hmm. uh, and i think i think the, the great um uh <coughs> those children that Lorca had was looking yeah. yeah. um, yeah, lovely the vega and it's, it's it's all dance uh, well, the, the words dance on the stage, and Lorca uses the metaphor of dance mm. constantly. Uh, he, he, he was the total art mm. creator, you know, he, he choreographed as well. 
But I mean, in, in the very earliest place, I mean, El Magnificio de la Mariposa wasn't it Encarnacion Jimenez, who was a dancer. Was, so I didn't hear that. In El Magnificio de la Mariposa, was it not was it not Encarnacion Jimenez who was a dancer who was the butterfly? So that was the very first play. Yes. Okay, it was rubbish and it was booed off, but it was viewed with dancer. In and isn't Zapatero Prodigioso also about? The, uh, all, all of the uh, trans women all coming on in different cloaks and swirling the cloaks yes. around, rushing off its all. And it, 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 it is just real choreography, even, and this is much more in the early plays than in the latest, more, more serious ones. But uh, it's interesting. It's, it's, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of early stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Salvador? Uh, Lope de Vega, that you mentioned, you know, the Spanish theatre, he wrote more than 1,000 plays, which you can, there are 900 something in, in the library in Madrid. Um, People went to see this place, more than the place, and there was a lot of words, but they had to put something else because if not, they would get bored. And the movement on the stage of Lope de Vega is incredible. The way he moves, and that movement gives up to mime, to marionettes of Lorca, and to the acting with dance. You know, and that's what I think you can do so much with the place of Lorca with dancing because it's already there. When, when I did, it's the picture, when I did Bernarda Alba, when it became, sorry to spoil your, your play, but I'm sure that you will read it, at the beginning of the act, they are all just sewing in the house. So I thought of the Velázquez, Las Hilanderas, for the painting. Yeah. And I just had them like a static painting, and they were just like marionettes, and they were just, and then began to move, and being controlled by the God or by society. But it's all popular. The, the Spanish theatre is popular. There was in the big squares. It's not like the English theatre that it was for mm. a minority. I think that's a very important point as well. It does come from very popular roots as well, where there had to be a variety of different forms. But one of the great things about Lorca is the different ways in which his work has now been reinterpreted through dance, opera, and so on as well. You know, you think of things like the Ballet Rombert and the Cruel Garden, which is fantastically working with Lorca's world. Uh, so, I, I, I can't imagine a single piece of writing by yeah. that wouldn't lend itself to, to dance. It's, 